So turn with me for the rest of you as the kids leave to the gospel according to Luke. Open your Bibles, open your Bible apps. Um, this, this text this morning I was read by uh, Jeannie is a short, but it's just loaded with information, loaded with spiritual insight into the person and the work of Jesus. That's what we're going to be looking at today. The person and the work of Jesus, the centrality of, of the gospel, of all of what the scriptures point to. If you remember from the very opening of the Luke's account of this, this Holy Spirit-inspired, directed, superintendent gospel, uh, we saw the Gabriel, the angel, and others make the announcement that Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he alone is the Holy One, the Son of the Most High God. He is the Son of David, and he rules and he'll reign in righteousness as King of an eternal kingdom. He was introduced, we saw in the first two chapters, with three titles, the Savior, his role as a deliverer, the Messiah, the Anointed One, we'll talk about that today, and the Lord, indicating his sovereign authority. That was the first couple of chapters Said of him at not only his announcement, but at actually his birth as well. 30 years go forward. Jesus comes out in his public ministry. He's baptized by John. Uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And he's full of the Spirit, driven into the wilderness. And like the second Adam, he's tempted by Satan. But unlike the first Adam who failed in the temptation, Jesus overcomes temptation and begins his ministry in Galilee. That's what we've been traveling with him through Galilee. He's going from village to village, city to city, preaching the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, which means, we saw this last week, I mentioned last week as well, the long-expected anticipation of the reign and rule of God has come. Remember we said that the Jewish people had all of these promises and all these pictures in their prophecies of the rule and the reign of God. It's this big hope and expectation of the people. Jesus announced that he is that true king. He has become, he has come to begin to make everything right. We said that the kingdom was, was a present reality as he reigns and rules now over his people. And in the end, he reigns and rules over all the world while he puts down all opposition. We live not only in the tension of the present kingdom, but also the kingdom coming, but also, as I said, the hope and the expectation of that kingdom. We've been saying over and over, the healings, the miracles, the rising from the dead, the, the, the leprosies that are being cleansed, all that are signs authenticating and, and validating his claims as to having to be the king of kings, having all authority over all creation. That's what it's pointing to. And during his ministry, we've been noticing that the crowds are growing, his disciples are increasing, opposition is mounting, and many people are coming to the place of asking who is this Jesus? Who is this guy? Chapter 7, excuse me, no, no, chapter 5. He, he forgives, heals and forgives a man and says his sins have been forgiven. And, and, the, and the leaders say, who is this that blasphemes against God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In chapter 7, Jesus forgives a woman in the street. Remember, she comes into this this table setting with these Pharisees and religious leaders starts weeping and crying and wiping Jesus' hair, uh, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and, and crying and, and anointing him with oil. And he forgives her sins and they say, who is this that forgives sins? His disciples are in a boat. They wake him up. The sea is crashing. He stands up and rebukes the sin, rebukes the waves, tells it to shut up and sit down. And they're like, who is this? Who is the who is this who even the winds and the water obey him? 
John the Baptist, is this the one that we, that we are expecting? Should we look for somebody else? Who is this? Herod chapter 9, verse uh, 9, the one who murdered John the Baptist says, I beheaded John, but who is this? Who is this about whom I, I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And now Jesus himself today in our text will ask a question that will help reveal his true identity. Very simple outline. The question, the confession, and the mission. The question, the confession, the mission. Luke tells us that Jesus finally gets to the place of rest. We've been talking about that. Remember, he got in a boat at Bethsaida. Uh, he, he, he gets in a boat. He goes to Bethsaida, uh, to the western, uh, excuse me, the eastern side of the Galilean Sea for a time of rest, a time of debriefing. The apostles just came back. Uh, from, from going from village to village, preaching the gospel, delivering people from uh, evil oppressions. The crowd is following the boat. When they land on shore, they don't get any rest. Jesus sees this crowd. He has compassion on them, begins teaching them, healing them. Right? No, no, you know, no rest for the weary. And then as night approached, we saw last week, Jesus takes five loaves of bread, two fish, little boy's lunch, the only one that had any sense and brought food with him. And he feeds 5,000 men alone, maybe 10,000 altogether, who knows. And from there we learn that Jesus and his disciples go to a place called Caesarea Philippi, about 25, 30 miles north of Bethsaida. We learn that from the other synoptic gospels, synoptic meaning similar, Matthew and Mark record this incident and it's in Caesarea Philippi. And again, just to get some rest, to get some debriefing, they go 25 miles away from the sea one, and one of the things we learn from our text, and I think Luke draws this out more than any other of, of gospel accounts, is that Jesus is often praying. We see that in verse, uh, at the very beginning in verse 18. He's praying. And we see that. We see Jesus praying before important decisions. He's praying uh, in key moments of his ministry, like at his baptism. Chapter 3, he's praying. He, he goes to the mountains of praying, comes down and chooses and appoints his 12 apostles, chapter 6. Here is the confession of Peter. He's praying. Later is transfiguration. We'll see as we get through this chapter, chapter 9, verse 28. He's praying. The temptation on the Mount of Olives, chapter 22. He's praying. And of course on the cross, Father, into thy hands I commit thy spirit. Or, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's praying. Think about that. The eternal Son of God, who was with God and was God, John 1, is a man of prayer. Dependent on prayer, he receives strength, he receives wisdom, he receives encouragement through prayer. Some of us, and I know I do, I need to hear that this morning. Because I'm, I, I may be lacking some of those things, right? Lacking strength, lacking encouragement, lacking wisdom. Why? In part because I, we don't take time to pray. Jesus was a man of prayer. It's a discipline. It's not going to just come naturally. It's something that we have to choose to do. I know that I say that to myself. I need to pray. It's been a very long, very busy time of ministry for everyone. And Luke says Jesus alone is praying alone. When he means alone, he means without the crowds. His disciples, apostles are there with him. And it's a time of prayer. And you can imagine just for a moment being there. I thought about this this week. Jesus is praying. Who knows what they're doing? They may be just going like, Listen to every word he says. Right? He's praying. His apostles are there. And then when he stops praying, he turns to his disciples. He says, I have a question. 
I'd be thinking, oh boy, here we go. I hope I got the right answer, right? He's just finished praying. Now he's going to ask me a question. Who do the crowd say that I am? What's the word on the street? What, what are people saying? Obviously, Jesus knows the answer. He's asking the question, not for his own information, but testing his disciples to help them recognize who he truly was. Remember from last week, we noticed throughout this ministry, throughout the past couple of weeks, especially, Jesus is testing his disciples. He's preparing them for ministry. He'll be crucified, arise from the dead. They're going to be filled with the Spirit. They need to be prepared for ministry, helping Jesus, showing them and, and teaching them to trust him. We saw that in the provision with the fish and the bread. Rely on God. Trust in the Lord. We saw that last week. Uh, have your ultimate satisfaction in the bread of life. And now this question Jesus asks them goes deeper. It's to recognize who is this Jesus. They answer the question, verse 19, John the Baptist, some say, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Matthew would add maybe Jeremiah. In Matthew, we also learn that when Jesus asked the question, he says, who does the crowd say that the Son of Man is? That's favorite title he likes to use for himself. We'll go back to that. And Jesus' question really reveals a trying to really disclose to them or at least bring them to the place of answering that question. And you know what? Herod said the same thing back in chapter 9. Maybe John, maybe Elijah, maybe a prophet. I don't know. But, but Lord, we know one thing, man. Uh, you, you, you know, that's some all-star people right there. I mean, Moses. I mean, Elijah. Jeremiah, I mean, if you're one of those, man, you have made, you, you have made the day, right? You are, you're one of the great sages, the wise men, an all-star team. Man, you, you're one of those guys. You, you belong with them. You know what? Unfortunately, some people believe that same thing today. Good man. Someone to look up to. Great teaching. There's some wonderful things. Cares about people. Maybe true, but that's not what he's getting at. What is interesting is that all the other prophets and founders of every world religion that ever walked never said and did the things that Jesus did, right? They, they were saying, you could I, learn from me and I will, I will point you to God. I will, I will show you how you can get to God on your own by your moral life, by your this teaching, by these certain things that you do, and that will get you into this place where you, you've come to know who God is. They're pointing people to God, the pathway maybe to God, by their moral, by their teachings. Never made the claims that Jesus made. Let it be really clear. Jesus made a very clear, very open, uh, a clear, distinctive claim that he was God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth in the flesh. John chapter 5, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jewish people were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood what Jesus was saying. I work as the father works. I do what the father does. No man says that unless he's God. No one does what God does but God himself. He'd make it very clear. C.S. Lewis, late professor of Cambridge University and once agnostic now was a follower of Christ, home in glory, sums it up well. He said the famous quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, end quote. 
This is the one, this is what people say. He continues, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. C.S. Lewis says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You could shut him up as a fool. You could spit on him as kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord our God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, end quote. The claims, the work. So the question for us this morning is the question, right? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Let me ask this question while we're there. So what? So what? Why does it matter that Jesus lived? Why does it matter that Jesus died? Why does it matter that there's an empty tomb? I hope to answer that question. Because you see, by, by preaching and, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, Jesus is not saying, I have come to show you a pathway to God. I have not come into the world to show you how you could save yourself, enlighten yourself. I've come to rescue you, redeem you, and to save you. I'm the Lord of the world. I have not come to point you to God. I have come as the only way to a holy God. Through my life, through my death, and my substitutionary death on the cross and resurrection from the day. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Singular and exclusive. The question. Verse 20. Then Jesus said to them, notice them, but who do you, by the way, that's plural for you to say, y'all, who do you all? Say that I am. And of course, Peter, right on cue, loves to talk first. I always thought, you know, whenever Jesus just stopped to turn around and look at the flowers, Peter bumped right into him like Peter's right there. You are the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Now remember, Jesus is his human name, right? Comes from the Hebrew word Yahshua, which means Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves. His divine name, Christ, is a transliteration of the Greek word Christos. You probably heard that before. Uh, Christos, meaning the anointed one. It's where we get the word Messiah. In the Hebrew, we get the word Messiah. So he's the, the anointed one, the Messiah. In the Old Testament, something you, you should know, uh, when a prophet, a priest, or a king uh, was set apart for the, for the holy service of God, many times they were anointed with oil. Aaron, Aaron was called and ordained as a priest over Israel. Moses was told by God uh, to take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Messiah, anointed one. The other priests were consecrated the same way, anointing with oil. Many times the prophets were also anointed. Isaiah would say in chapter 61, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. But anointment of oil was especially made and done for priests, excuse me, for kings, for kings. Samuel, remember, anointed David over Israel. Uh, Zodak anointed King Solomon. Elijah anointed Yehu in Second Kings. This, this anointing of oil over the kings and other folks was a symbol, was a physical symbol of their spiritual calling. It would, it would show us visually that they were set apart, anointed for the work of God. 
And from that time forward, we saw that when we studied the book of Isaiah, kings were often called the Messiahs, the, the Christ, the, the anointed ones. But there was always a day and there was always a time, there was always hints that one day God would send the greatest prophet, the, the highest priest, and the mightiest king of all. They knew those ancient promises. It was connected again to the hope of the kingdom of God. They knew that someone would come, would deliver them, would crush Satan's head, Genesis 3.15. They knew they would, someone would come and be raised up as a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. A mighty king would come from the royal city, Micah 5, all Old Testament passages. And then 2 Samuel 7, we know that God is going to raise up someone from the lineage of David, will sit on the throne of David over a kingdom that's everlasting, a kingdom that is forever. So the people are waiting for this anointed, the Messiah, the, the Christos, the Christ, the anointed one. They're looking for him. Uh, they knew it. And, and, and Peter's like, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the ultimate anointed one. You're the coming king. You're the promised Messiah, the anointed one. You're the one we're looking for. The prophet that should come, the king, the eternal savior, the embodiment of all our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our promises. You're the Christ. And we know in Matthew 16 that this incident, we know where he got that information from, don't we? Jesus turns to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He says, you didn't get that information, Peter. From your humanness, flesh and blood, from your reason, from your intellect, some sort of merit, some sort of calculation, analysis, some intuition. There's nothing in the human realm that could possibly reveal this to you. It is God who disclosed his son to your understanding. Matthew 11 says, all things have been handed over to me by my father, Jesus speaking. And no one comes to the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What you see in Scripture is the Father is revealing the Son, the Son is revealing the Father, and we can only know this divine revelation of Christ through the work of God. And, and honestly, that's how all of us come to know Christ. That's how all of us come to know that Jesus is the Christ. By learning what he said, watching what he did, revealed to us in his word, and also by the supernatural work of God. God's spirit working in us alone is the one who reveals the true identity. That's, that's how Peter came to know. You read the evidence, that's great. We need that. We need the scripture as well. But we need the gracious work of God that changes the heart. And, and I have to ask myself the question, I mean, how did that really happen? Did did, did did, did God somehow just like give him more information at that moment? Did he just put, you know, it, it injected into Peter's head the information, some supernatural hypodermic? Listen to me. The Father revealed Jesus Christ to be the Messiah to Peter through Christ himself. By following, listening to Jesus through the wilderness, through the roads, across the mountains, on the water, village to village, sitting down to eat together. He revealed it through Christ himself. As the light began to dawn and the Spirit of God opened his heart, the revelation came through the presence of Christ himself. His heart, his conscience was wide open to the fact now that Jesus is the Christ through Jesus himself, the work of Jesus himself. Now, where do I get that from? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
In their case, that's unbelievers, the God of this world, small g, the enemy of God, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers from what? From keeping them to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, to see this beauty and glory and incalculable worth of Christ. That's the enemy who doesn't want us to see that light. Who, he says, who is the image of God? Verse 6, for it is God. God is the one who said, let light shine out of darkness. God is doing that. And God has shown in our hearts, 2 Corinthians, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, where? Of Jesus Christ. The revelation of the beauty, worth, and value of God is seen in the face of of Jesus Christ. God opens the hearts, God opens the mind to taste the true divine glory and majesty of who Jesus is. In other words, this is what I'm saying. God does not come to Lou or to you and says, look, I know you don't see anything magnificent and glorious in my son. You don't see, his, you don't, you don't, you don't see him as this all-glorious and divine, beautiful person above all earthly things. You don't see him as your all-satisfying treasure. You don't see his holiness and power and love and, as beautiful beyond measure, but, but he is. Just take my word for it. Listen, there are many people who acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. They know the Christmas story. Maybe you're here, you know the Christmas story, you know the Easter story. But the so what is when our hearts are stirred with genuine affection. And we, we see with our spiritual eyes Jesus as he is in himself, the all-glorious, all-satisfying treasure through the work of the Father and the Holy Spirit. We discover who Jesus is, not in a vacuum, but when we look to Jesus Christ, listen to Jesus. Not, not the Jesus of your own mind or your own philosophical imagination, but the Jesus who's revealed in Scripture. When you hear the word of God, when you read the word of God, you're taught the things of God and he awakens your conscience by the spirit of God. The light shines, the darkness is, is, is dismissed. And how, how, how does that happen? Listen, by embracing the mission. Verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Peter, you are the Christ, son of the living God saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now I put that other verse in there, Matthew 16, because at that moment in Matthew and Mark, but in Matthew, it's at that moment that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke God. A little dangerous, I, I would say don't do that. Far be it, Lord, never to you. He turned to Peter and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but where are they? On the things of man, the things of this world. Now, to understand why Jesus would strictly charge and command them not to tell no one, or why Peter reacted the way he did, is because in order to understand that, we need to see the connection between this Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one, and what Jesus is pointing to now, the suffering servant. Okay? 
The suffering servant would be rejected. He'll be crucified. He he will suffer. He'll be rejected, be crucified, and rise from the dead. Now, remember, we've been saying, or the scripture's been teaching us, they're looking, they're hoping, they're anticipating a greater king than David. Someone who would come and restore the kingdom. Someone who would reign and rule uh, 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 in worldwide power comes from 2 Samuel 7. Okay? In fact, back in John chapter 1, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, interesting enough, the very beginning, before he really got into this Galilean ministry, Jesus is with Andrew. Andrew sees Jesus. He's uh, Peter's brother. And they spend a day together. And Andrew spends a day with Jesus. And then it says that he went and looked for Peter the apostle. And he found Peter, and this is what he said to Peter. This is early on in the ministry. We have found the Messiah. That's what, that's what Andrew said to Peter. We have found the anointed king. Right after that, in John 1, Philip, another early follower, finds Nathaniel, and this is what he says to Nathaniel. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In Mark's account in chapter 6, after, uh, right before Jesus fed the 5,000, it says, it went to the shore, there was a gar- large crowd, and Jesus says, uh, excuse me, the scripture says that they had compassion on, Jesus had compassion on the crowd, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now follow me here, okay? John 6, feed the 5,000 again. Indeed, this is the prophet who came into the world. That's what it says after the feeding of the 5,000. And then it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, he withdrew. What is all this pointing to? Track with me. A prophet's going to come. A king is going to come. When Moses... When you see Jesus feeding 5,000 up on the mountain, this picture, this Mosaic-like picture of feeding people, you see all this pointing to, well, in the Exodus, or after the Exodus, Moses uh, uh, has delivered the people from Egypt uh, through the work of God, of course, and he told them that they should look for another prophet, someone who will come like him, who would redeem God's people. That's in Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord, the Lord your God, he says, will Raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is him you shall listen. Moses approaches the end of his life. At the time he said that a, a, a shepherd will come. Look at Numbers 27. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, May the Lord, the God of all the spirits of the flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, the people of God, who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will be like what? Sheep which have no shepherd will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Right? You see all this, all this imagery. Moses asking for this militarily and political leader. Who's he talking about? Joshua, right? Joshua will come and lead the people, at least right at the moment. So when Jesus says, now listen, when Jesus says they are like sheep without a shepherd, or he shows himself to be a greater and, and, and better Moses feeding people, he, they are immediately thinking military leader political leader, someone that will deliver them from Roman oppression, another Moses, another Joshua. That's why they wanted to take him by force and make him king. They were looking for this greater leader, a better king, to lead them in the battle and ultimately into victory. That's what they're looking for. But there's something more I want you to see in this text. When Jesus used the title, the Son of Man must suffer many things. You are the Christ, 
Moses, all, all the deliverer, all that stuff. David's uh, son, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed king. Then Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things. What does he mean? I'm glad you asked. Just track with me. We'll wrap, we'll, 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 hopefully you'll, you'll track with me. Daniel spoke in the Old Testament about the son of man. This is what he said. In my vision at night, I looked and there... Before me was one like a son of man, coming, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, the Father, and was led into his presence. He, Jesus, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign powers. All peoples, nations, and men, and every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see this prophetic word just joining everything together. The king, the Messiah, the anointed one coming from the ancient of days, given authority and a power and dominion. And Jesus is saying, I am that son of man in Daniel's vision. I'm the son of man in Daniel's vision. I have the authority, glory, and sovereign powers. All peoples and nation, every tongue will worship me and my dominion and my kingdom is everlasting. That, that's the attributes of God. So when Jesus says the son of man must suffer, like, whoa, 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 hold on a minute, hold on a minute. The Son of Man, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Shepherd that will lead us in battle, the one who will have victory over the world is going to suffer? That don't make sense. We saw this when we preached through Isaiah. There's this suffering servant. He was pierced through for our transgressions. That's the cross. 800 years before Jesus, talking about the cross. Crushed for our iniquities. Scourging, by his scourging we're healed. He was oppressed, afflicted, didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb, he's led to the slaughter, going to Calvary. Like a sheep, silent before its shearers. He didn't open his mouth. His grave was assigned with the wicked, yet he was with a rich man in his death. That's the burial of Jesus. My servant, my suffering servant, will justify the many, he will bear their iniquities. He poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many. You see what Jesus is doing? He's taking the shepherd king, Messiah, anointed one, who will win the battle, have victory over the world, and he's tying it together with the suffering servant. The, the son of man, this powerful, cosmic, divine figure, was going to suffer? It made no sense, especially to Peter. That's why he rebuked them. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Smart Messiah is supposed to come and stop injustices, turn and remove the curse, bring righteousness and peace to the world, defeat all that's wrong, make the, everything right. How is he going to defeat evil and injustice by, being, by, by suffering and being crucified? Ridiculous. May it never be. That's not what we're looking for. You know what? Sometimes we approach Jesus the same way. We want what we want from him. That's why Jesus said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Sometimes our eyes are, are, are looking at the things of this world, the things that we need, the things that we want, and not what's most important. His name is Jesus. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus will suffer and die. It doesn't say Jesus may suffer and die. What does it say? Jesus, what? Must suffer and die. And when you look to Jesus as the king of kings, as willing to go to a cross, a king who will pay 
the debt that our sins have accumulated against God, it will not only stir our affections, but it will change us from the inside. Listen, the reason that it says he must suffer and die is because the only way God will forgive us, the only way we are, can be pardoned if he, God himself, in the Son, goes to the cross and sacrifices himself, absor absorbs the debt we owe in himself. You see, God is holy. God demands justice for sin and rebellion against him. Our society is made the same way. Justice must be served to keep culture, keep society. That's how forgiveness works. Someone's got to pay the debt. Death is the penalty for our sins. But in Christ's suffering, in his rejection, in his dying, and on the third day rising again, God demonstrates not only his love and mercy toward others, but at the same time displays his obligation to his own righteousness and holiness and justice. And Jesus, excuse me, justice is served by the work of Christ. He pays the penalty for our sins. He absorbs the wrath, the just wrath we deserve for our sins, and he satisfies and maintains God's commitment to righteousness and justice. Family, when you come to realize that God is not obligated to forgive anyone, save anyone from their sins, but he chose in love through grace and mercy and compassion to go to the cross for you and for me, to take your just punishment, then you could go from simply acknowledging his person to embracing his mission, drinking deeply of that truth, that we are so desperately sinful and wicked that he had to go to the cross. We are loved and valued that he was glad to. I think all Christ followers, if, you, if, if I spoke with you and you're a follower of Christ, you've been born again of his spirit, God worked that miraculous work in your life, you would say, you know what, before I came to faith, I, I thought I knew him. I had an idea of the person, the work of Jesus. If you asked me, I look back now and I'm like, I really didn't know. I, I was taught those things in, in, in church maybe or my family or maybe I just knew the Bible story, Christmas and Easter but it didn't change me. But now something's changed. Now my eyes have been opened. And if that has not happened to you, where you're like, I could look back, you probably are not really seeing Jesus for who he is. Let me illustrate it for you, and then we'll have the band come up. There once was a man who, true story, who refused to wear a seatbelt. It was upsetting and troubling for his friends and his family especially. And one particular friend, every time he saw this man who would never put a seatbelt on, he, he, he would question him and give him a hard time. Like, dude, you need to wear a seatbelt. They were good friends. And then one day the good friend comes and the, and the one who would not wear a seatbelt is wearing a seatbelt. And his friend says to him, man, you're wearing a seatbelt. What, what's going on? His friend said, I recently visited someone in a hospital who was in a car accident and wasn't wearing a seatbelt. He went through the windshield and got 145 stitches in his face. Now think about that for a minute. You mean the guy didn't understand that that might happen? Of course he did. You mean he didn't get it really until he actually went to the visit, the man in the hospital? No, he, we know the statistics. He didn't get any new information, but now he understood you see, seeing the damage negatively, Jesus saying positive, see the beauty of who I am. See the beauty of my mission. When Jesus becomes more beautiful than useful, when Jesus is not simply a story you've heard, but your Savior from sin and Lord of your life, your eyes will be open to the reality and truth 
of the gospel. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and he is saved. When you see Jesus heading to Jerusalem, we'll see that in the next few uh, week or two. When you see Jesus heading to Jerusalem, not to live on a throne, but to die on a cross. Not to gain ultimate power, but to give up his life. Not going to Jerusalem to rule, but to serve. That's how he will defeat evil and put everything right through the cross. We're going to have four baptisms. The band can come on up. We're going to have four baptisms. Do you know Christ that way? These four people have made acknowledgement that they see Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives. Is he just a story? Is he, yeah, he's the Son of God. I heard it in Christmas, heard it in Easter. I would agree to that. Has he really changed your life? Do you really see him as the Savior from your sin and Lord of all creation? That's our prayer. That's, that's our hope today. And if God is tugging on your heart and the Holy Spirit is whispering to your ear saying, yeah, you don't know him like that, Today's the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for revealing to us by the power of your spirit, the beauty of your son. God, we pray for someone maybe in this room that has not come to that place of surrender to you. We pray by your spirit they would see their sin, but they would see your grace and mercy. They would see their rebellion, but they would see the cross where all their sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for. And then we look at the empty tomb. Sacrifice accepted. Forgiveness offered to those who trust you. God, we pray that by your spirit, we would come to that place of complete surrender to you as Savior and Lord of our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.